But she then adds many codicils to the reader's enjoyment of freedom, culminating in the grand question, where are we to begin? To get the deepest and widest pleasures of reading, we must not squander our powers helplessly and ignorantly. So it seems that, until we become wholly ourselves, some advice about reading may be helpful, even perhaps essential. Wolfe herself had found that advice in Walter Pater, whose sister had tutored her, and also in Dr. Johnson, and in the romantic critics Thomas de Quincey and William Hazlitt, of whom she wonderfully remarked, "'He is one of those rare critics who have thought so much that they can dispense with reading.'" Wolfe thought incessantly, and never would stop reading. She herself had a good deal of advice to give to other readers, and I have happily taken it throughout this book. Her best advice is to remind us that there is always a demon in us who whispers, I hate, I love, and we cannot silence him. I cannot silence my demon, but in this book anyway, I will listen to him only when he whispers, I love, as I intend no polemics here, but only to teach reading. Prologue Why read? It matters if individuals are to retain any capacity to form their own judgments and opinions that they continue to read for themselves. How they read, well or badly, and what they read, cannot depend wholly upon themselves but why they read must be for and in their own interest. You can read merely to pass the time, or you can read with an overt urgency, but eventually you will read against the clock. Bible readers, those who search the Bible for themselves, perhaps exemplify the urgency more plainly than readers of Shakespeare, yet the quest is the same. One of the uses of reading is to prepare ourselves for change, and the final change, alas, is universal. I turn to reading as a solitary praxis rather than as an educational enterprise. The way we read now, when we are alone with ourselves, retains considerable continuity with the past, however it is performed in the academies. My ideal reader and lifelong hero is Dr. Samuel Johnson, who knew and expressed both the power and the limitation of incessant reading. Like every other activity of the mind, it must satisfy Johnson's prime concern, which is with what comes near to ourself, what we can put to use. Sir Francis Bacon, who provided some of the ideas that Johnson put to use, famously gave the advice, read not to contradict and confute, nor to believe and take for granted, nor to find talk and discourse, but to weigh and consider. I add to Bacon and Johnson a third sage of reading, Emerson, fierce enemy of history and of all historicisms, who remarked that the best books impress us with the conviction that one nature wrote and the same reads. Let me fuse Bacon, Johnson, and Emerson into a formula of how to read. 
Find what comes near to you that can be put to the use of weighing and considering, and that addresses you as though you share the one nature, free of time's tyranny. Pragmatically, that means first find Shakespeare and let him find you. If King Lear is fully to find you, then weigh and consider the nature it shares with you, its closeness to yourself. I do not intend this as an idealism, but as a pragmatism. Putting the tragedy to use as a complaint against patriarchy is to forsake your own prime interests, particularly as a young woman, which sounds rather more ironical than it is. Shakespeare, more than Sophocles, is the inescapable authority upon intergenerational conflict, and more than anyone else, upon the differences between women and men. Be open to a full reading of King Lear, and you will understand better the origins of what you just...